Good morning. All right, we're going to see how this goes. I got through one service so far, but I woke up this morning, actually last three, almost week, with a bit of laryngitis, so my voice isn't the, the sharpest, although I can sound like Batman. So it, it, it's kind of cool. Uh, but um, this morning, one, a couple things, if you guys are interested, there's the blessing bags. I would advise you guys to really do that. But there's also the opportunity, if you haven't noticed, the, anybody notice the ornaments that are hanging down the hall as you walk down this hall right here? Anybody seen those? I would really stop and look at those. They're really cool. They're actually, uh, are, again, Christmas is about kind of Christmas around the world. They're various traditions from different countries painted by actually an artist in our church. And so it's a pretty cool thing. It's actually, it was commissioned by us and she did an amazing job. I don't want those to go unnoticed. So spend some time, hang out down the hallway, take a peek at those, and you'll get to know a little bit more about Christmas from around the world. In the meantime, we are um, in the book of John, and really this time is, is a great time period to be in the book of John. John is so focused on Jesus as God coming to this earth. And that's exactly what Christmas is about. It's exactly the celebration of Christmas. Excuse me. I am a mess right now. And um, wanted to just remind us to that fact, but it also backs me into a conversation that that's all I always find fascinating when I talk to people. And I want to just start off right now. If you're, if you're bold enough to do so, would somebody, a couple of you right now, would somebody over here just, who are your heroes? Somebody shout out some of your heroes that you guys have. John Glenn. God, John Glenn. Oh, you stole my intro. Oh, sorry. Sorry. What was that? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Who else? Anybody over here got one? David Jeremiah, any other heroes? Heard Jesus? Okay, so we got a few of these, and here's the interesting thing. At church, how many of you thought Jesus? Throw your hand up, be honest. You're a church, you know, because I think what's fascinating is when that question, who's your hero, happens, and I asked this at one of our sermon planning meetings, one of the guys actually said, I don't really want to be super religious, but it's Jesus. And I'm like, what an interesting response. I don't want to be super religious, but it's Jesus. And how many of us feel uncomfortable that it'd be like, yeah, some of you are like, no way, Jesus, you know, you're awesome on that. Others of us were like, yeah, I feel like that's kind of like the answer everybody gives, you know, sort of that Sunday school story about the Sunday school teacher who has all the little kids in front of her. And, and she goes, hey, guys, I have a question for you this morning as we begin. Just was really curious. Can you answer my question? What is gray with a big bushy tail and loves nuts? And the kids all look at each other like, uh. And finally, Johnny gets Bray, raises his hands. Yes, Johnny. He's like, um, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Because isn't that how it works? Every answer at church, the answer is Jesus. And that's what I think we're kind of, some of us may be reacting to if we are feel uncomfortable. I praise God that some of you guys are like, Jesus, the first service had like the loudest Jesus I've heard in a long time. And people are passionate about Christ, especially at church, especially at this time of the year. But if you go out there amongst the uh, secular world, very few people are going to say Jesus. I think George W. Bush said his hero was Jesus, and he was lampooned for weeks in the media. It's not a popular figure, in a sense, to call your hero. And yet, what I want to do is challenge that. I think everyone in here can honestly, willingly say Jesus is their hero. And I think you're going to be shocked how much it's true regardless of who you are, if you're Christian or not. 
And that's really the challenge that we get to in the book of John. You see, Jesus has been in this conversation with the Pharisees. He's been at this big festival of his own called the Festival of the Feast of Booths. We've heard him all in all these conversations. He's just finished saying, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but have, um, but will walk in the light of life. And he's gotten this big argument some people believe. And he turns to those brand new believers and he says, okay, guys, you need to stay in my word if you're truly my disciples, but I know you're really enslaved to sin. And and you're also on the devil's team, so I know how this is going to work out. Well, that becomes pretty insulting to be told you're on the team with the devil, and uh, that's exactly how they took it. And so we're going to pick up from there in John chapter 8 as Jesus turns the corner and they begin to have a conversation about heroes. So as you're opening to John 8, 48 through 59, page 895 in the text in your seat, I want to remind us just that you know, one of the things about Christianity and one of the things about Judaism is we have human heroes. The ancient world had mythological heroes. They had, a, they had all these Achilles and Perseus and these guys who fought these great epic battles but, um, or Gilgamesh. In our world, we had heroes. Judaism had tons of heroes. For wisdom, they had Solomon. For leadership, they had David. For, for um, strength, they had Joshua and conquest. For, for law, they had Moses. But the hero to beat all heroes in the Jewish faith was a dude named Abraham. Abraham was the hero of heroes because all heroes that they had begin with the faithfulness of Abraham. And so as we get into this, you're going to note this is a contest about heroism in a lot of different ways. So let's go ahead and take a look at this because Jesus just finished telling them, your father is the devil and you guys listen to him and you follow after him and they're they're pretty insulted, and so they turn insult for insult. They turn around, and they say, oh yeah, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And what they're doing here is using the lowest insult possible. In the Jewish mind, Samaritans were these half Jewish, half Gentile people who were in just, they were running amok, destroying the Jewish religion because while claiming to hold the Jewish religion, they had adjusted aspects of the, uh, of the um, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law, to say that the actual worship was to be found on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem at the temple. They rejected the rest of the Bible, and so they were basically in the minds of the Jewish people heretics. <laughs> false teachers who are seeking to actually destroy the Jewish faith. So when they call Jesus a heretic or a Samaritan with a demon, they're saying, you're not just a heretic. You're of the worst kind. You're inspired by a demon. You're evil and a heretic. So they've gone from believing in Jesus to calling him a horrible, evil, demonically possessed heretic. As they're doing this, Jesus is going to respond but I find it fascinating because the way Jesus responds is not how we would expect a hero to respond. You see, one of the things, the reason I think Jesus is the greatest hero is because, first of all, is his humility. He shows off a humility that is unknown in modern heroes, save John Glenn. And if you don't know, if you've heard the stories of John Glenn and what he has done as a senator and an astronaut, it's a, heroes are in, the, are in the news right now. And a lot of people have asked, well, who are the modern day heroes? And it's important to note the struggle to find good names for that. And yet, we could easily say that Jesus is the greatest of heroes because of his humility. Notice how he responds. 
It doesn't say, and Jesus yelled at them, or Jesus got ticked off and walked away. No, it just simply says Jesus answered. In the midst of the most insulting insult you can get in their culture, he doesn't turn around and start screaming. He just simply replies, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So there's, a, there's an implied warning going on here. He says, look, you want to call me a demon-possessed guy. Look, I don't have a demon, but you're insulting me nonetheless. And I want to, I want to push back because you be careful. I'm not looking to be famous here, guys. My father is out for that, and he's going to judge the world. So be careful is how we take this. Now, I'm just curious, how do you go from somebody who wants to believe in Jesus, as they did just in a, a few verses ago, to calling him a Samaritan with a demon? And yet, I think we can get this. How many of you remember what it was like to be in third grade? Anybody remember that? You, you can go back, sit in your third grade class, or your second grade class. I had a teacher named Miss Tickum, and we used to call her Miss Tick, 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 Boom. But that... Uh, because <laughs> that's how she was. But the reality was that I can still go back there. And, and do you remember that kid in your class, the know-it-all? The kid who, who, uh, who had his hand up or her hand up for every answer. They knew it. They had to have the answer. Come on, me, 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 me. And the teacher's like dodging them because they got to give somebody else a chance. And what did we call those people? Oh, you know-it-all. You're such a know-it-all. Or you guys thought I was going to say nerd, huh? That's different. But uh, but then you turn around and then there was the kids who never got detentions and they never did anything wrong. And you're like, oh, you guys are just goody two-shoes. Or, or you found this other guy who handed the, tea, ap, the teacher an apple or seemed to get away with things in class. And what did we call them? We called them the teacher's, teacher's pet. Why is it that we have all these crazy names when somebody wants to stand up for goodness and stand firm in their morals in the middle of our, in the middle of our political system? We call them a boy scout. You turn around and you got somebody who's going to not go against the company, who's going to go against the company line and tell about the things that are going wrong. We call him a whistleblower. What is with it that we take the good, and the righteous people, and we got to tear them down? We're going to say, you can't be that good. You can't really be that way. I'm going to make a name, a pejorative, because of your goodness. There's something about Jesus it wasn't about his teachings, which oftentimes confronted them and they loved. And it wasn't about his miracles, which helped people and cared. But what was it about Jesus' presence, his character, that caused people to back up and have to tear him down? I think what happens is oftentimes when we meet good, when we see a hero, we have an innate response. They can't really be that good. They can't really be that amazing. And we spent a generation tearing apart our heroes, haven't we? Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, let's take a look at in his background. Oh, look what we found. Thomas Jefferson. Known less for the Declaration of Independence than for having children with slaves now. Abraham Lincoln. George Washington. You name the heroes of our time, of our past, and we will find reasons. They can't be that good. How dare they really be heroes? Even the modern heroes that we have, a movie, movie goer, and we love our, 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 our stars and stuff. When somebody gets a divorce, it's all over the tabloids because it sells and it makes us feel better. Oh, they don't have a perfect life. 
Something about when we meet perfection, something about when we meet goodness calls us to tear it down. So it's no wonder these guys have switched and changed positions on Jesus so quickly. They hear the truth. They don't like the truth. They respond to the truth. And yet Jesus doesn't respond back. He simply keeps going. He keeps speaking the same truth with the same demeanor, just answering the questions, not getting angry. And yet what I find fascinating is in his answer, Jesus espouses his humility. He says, guys, I'm not out for my own fame. I'm not out for my own glory. There's one who seeks that glory, but it's not me. It's my Father in heaven. Now, this is interesting to me. I want to take a little theological side note for a second. Because notice what Jesus says. Read it carefully. He says, I, verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, seeks my glory. And he is the judge. There's this day of judgment coming. We'll cover that in a second. But his point is, look, I'm not out for me. I'm not out for my glory. And yet, I struggle with this. See, I had, I had some pretty strong atheist friends growing up. And we'd get into banter and dialogue when I was just becoming a Christian. And one of the objections that was laid before me pretty often was one that was, I always felt was kind of difficult to answer. Here you have a God who is all-powerful and amazing and all this stuff, and he demands that you worship him. He demands that you sing and bow your knee to him. He demands it from you because he's so good. In fact, if you don't, he's going to punish you in hell. What kind of egomaniac demands worship? And if you don't give it to him, it's going to lock you away in hell. That's a tough question. Have we wrestled with that? That God commands our worship in the Psalms all over the place. In fact, it's told to us that it's a sin not to worship God. And therefore, yes, if we don't worship him, he'll walk you away in hell. Have we wrestled with that thought? What do we do with that? And yet, stop for a minute and look again at what Jesus does. Jesus, who has been clearly declared several times in the scriptures already to this point, is saying, this isn't just Jesus, some spiritual dude trying to get your attention. No, this is God in the flesh. And God standing amongst those who should worship him. He's chosen the Jews. He's made the Jewish people. They know his word. He doesn't sit there and go, you need to worship me. Worship me, worship me, worship me. That's not what God does. In fact, what he says is, I'm not really looking for your worship. I don't seek my own glory. And there lies an answer to that problem of an egomaniacal God. See, if God is just one person yelling, worship me, we have a problem. But what's fascinating is as you dive into Christian truth and the scriptures, you find out that because of Christmas that was revealed to us, there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. The Son came in the flesh to love us and to care for us. And that this triune God is not standing there going, worship me! No. The Son is saying, the Father is awesome. Give Him glory. Worship the Father. The Spirit is awesome. Give Him glory. Worship the Spirit. The Father is going, my Son is awesome. Worship Him. He's worthy of it. The Spirit is awesome. Worship Him. He's worthy. And the Spirit's going, they're awesome. Each one is deflecting the glory and the worship to the other who is God. So that they're not egomaniacal. They're in essence pouring forth praise and glorifying each other and calling us each to worship God. 
And the beauty is that God is actually worthy of worship. See, he doesn't just stand there and go, you need to worship me. No, he makes us. And he creates a world of stars above our heads and canyons super deep and rock formations in Yosemite that when you drive down, you just can't help but go, what is this? The depth of space, the intricacy of the design of our cells makes us step back and go, what is this? You know what science is intended to be? The call to church. It's a call to wonder at God, the creator, to blow our minds away so that we see how great he is. See, you don't have to be commanded to worship when you encounter him and all he does. It's the part of us that resists the perfect that wants to pull it down. And you know what Jesus says is, I'm not looking for your worship, guys. Worship the Father. And the Father's going, ah, worship my son. And in that, we are not having an egomaniacal problem. We're having the God who is worship within himself, calling us to join in, calling us to wonder at the same time. And that's why we can actually back up and see that Jesus actually is really, truly humble. God on earth, not yelling at everybody to worship him. He's actually saying, I'm not out for my own glory. Which should remind us then that when we emulate heroes, we emulate, we shouldn't be looking at the superstar going like, man, that was amazing. Did you see what I did with that touchdown? Oh, I shot that shot. I just, I scored outlights. I'm amazing. You know, I'm the greatest. Whatever a lot of these new kind of athletes and stars are doing in some cases. And we step back and we're like, what is this? This doesn't look like a hero, a role model. But Jesus' humility draws it in. And I think it's a call for us to remember something, that when we have done something successful, and I think this is a great call for, especially for pastors and worship leaders who can amass large groups of people, it's a reminder that's not about them. That even in the successes and the things that they do and we all do, it's a call to come to church. What do I mean by that? Guys, you've had some things you've done this week that were successes. It may not have been in the global arena, it may have just been in your home. It may have been at school. It may be that you actually graduated or something to that level. Maybe it's something that you were able to accomplish this week and you're feeling amazing about it. But what you get to do is just let God glorify you, bring it to him and allow it to fuel your worship. And so what I want to do right now is just respond to this for a second with simply bowing our heads for, for about 30 seconds. And whatever it is that happened in your life, just offer it up to God today. And tell him thank you. Let's try that right now. I love this little exercise, something I hope you can practice before you come to church. As a reminder in your car on the way, instead of yelling at each other or yelling at the traffic, whatever happens in your car. I don't know. That's between you and, you and God and the person you're yelling at. But the, uh, the reality is that you have this chance to actually lay out some of the great things God has done in your life to prep you for the worship. You see, it's simply applying James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus lives this out. The way of the hero is one who humbles himself, lays over those good things that has happened, the wonderful things that have occurred, and God will lift you up 
according to his timing, to the state that you should be at, and so on. And so I think we find in Jesus a, a beautiful characteristic of humility, that that's not alone that makes him the hero. What makes Jesus a hero is what he says next. And what he says next is pretty audacious. He continues in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In essence, Jesus is the greatest because he, Jesus' word overcomes death. And we go, whoa, time out, Greg. Overcomes death? I mean, Christians have been living for centuries. And, and as far as I can tell, even Jesus died and all the people before him died. I think the percentage of death at this point is 100 Everybody I know has died. Well, not I know, but you know, everybody will. You're all dying right now, by the way, just so you know. But the reality, sad statement. But anyway, the point is, it's 100%. And Jesus says, oh yeah? Follow my word and you won't die. In fact, notice how the Jewish people respond. Verse 52, they said, Jews said to him, "Now, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death? Look, the great heroes of faith died. You, you think you died? You, you, we're going to follow you and you're not going to die? What are, you, what are you saying? Now, here's what's wrong. is We can get caught into a materialistic vision. That all we have is this world. And when we talk about death, all you can think about is the death of your body. But the Bible goes far deeper and John cares very little about the death of your body. In fact, the book of John and all of John's writings care far more about a greater death that, is already, that can occur and has already occurred in many of our souls. That death is, is backed up all the way to Adam and Eve. And if you've started reading your Bible or maybe it's your first year in your Bible and you're already at the end, go back and you can remember the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God says, don't touch that or don't eat from that tree in the center of the garden. And yet this tree, which is a test of their obedience... They fail. They go and they eat of it. But the consequence that God told them was, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely what? Die. And here's the thing. They ate it and they didn't die. And some people point to that and say, see, God's a liar. But what's interesting is the deeper portion of the concept. It wasn't physical death that was threatened. Ultimately, that would come. It would ca- what happened in their soul would catch up with their body. But the reality is death is painful and awful because it's always a separation. It's a cutting. And that's the vision of the Bible with death. And when we rebelled against God with sin, we turned away from the one who is the author and giver of life. In fact, the scriptures would argue God is life himself. That he is valuable, thrilling, meaningful, purpose-filled life. That's all he's ever known. And he's made us to reflect that value-filled, purpose-filled, meaning-filled, thrilling life. But we turned away and now we run around filling ourselves with different values, filling ourselves with different purposes, filling ourselves with different thrills to try to find life. So we jump out of airplanes and say, I'm living for a few moments. Pull the ripcord. Living's over. Whatever it is, we seek for life, and yet what we've done is we've incurred a spiritual death. And Jesus says, my word will happen, well, if you follow it, you will never experience death. You'll never taste it. 
You'll never see it. This spiritual death that has begun in you will not come to the final equation. What is called by John in another one of his books, the second death. In Revelation 20, 12, he says in this great scene where this throne appears, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. So this is the judgment. He's just declared God's the judge who's coming. Look, you don't have to face the judge is what he's saying. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Skip forward. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This, that lake of fire, is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, what happens is when we reject God and we turn away from life, we begin a trajectory within our soul that is destined to a final judgment, which is true death. Regardless of the fact you'd have your body back in a resurrection, death of the soul is a far greater horror than the death of a body. Now, some of us and many of us have witnessed our loved ones die of cancers and various diseases. And it's a horrific thing to watch the body die. Others of us have witnessed the death of a soul, though. We've watched our friends become more hollow and more depressed and more ashamed and guilty to the point where they talk and they speak of the internal pain that they feel as being worse than death. They would cut themselves just to feel life. They take drugs just to get the pain away. Because what has gone inside is a necrosis, a dying of the soul that began from our sins. Now, I'm not saying those things are evil, but what I'm saying is when you're in those states and you sense the depth of the death and you sense the longing for something to give you life and you sense the horror of the feelings, of the anxieties and the depressions, what you are tasting of is that second death. What you're tasting of is a hell that God does not want anyone to suffer for eternity. And so he sent his son. And what did his son do? Jesus got on that cross. And on that cross, he went down to the bottom of that death. He went down into the pits of that very second death and swallowed it whole, suffering the very sufferings that our sin brings about and judgment brings by taking it on himself. So that when he died on the cross, he had suffered our hell for us. And in that, he sets us free. In that, he says, you will never taste that death. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, trusted in his word, that what he has given you is freedom from death, you will not taste it. Everyone who exists in heaven will know they deserve that death, but only one has tasted it. And that will be Jesus. Which is, to my book makes him the most heroic being that has ever existed. That he would suffer to bring us life. That he would suffer something he never should have suffered because he never sinned. You couldn't tear him down. There was nothing to find in his closet. And instead, what he brought was himself to a humble place on the cross that we wouldn't have to suffer. And in that, he acts as the ultimate hero. He says to us, they're, they're, look, what hero is bigger? What hero is better in this reality that he says he's overcome death? Hercules didn't overcome death. I don't know. No superhero overcomes death that I know of, let alone any other human that we can find. No one can release you from that judgment day. But Jesus does, and he did.
if we'll walk in his word. So why should we tear him down? Why do we want to pull him down? Why do people want to pull Tom Brady down? Does anybody in here love to hate Tom Brady? Just raise your hand and say yes. All right. I have found more people who hate Tom Brady than any other human on the planet right now. I I just find it fascinating. (coughs) I was talking to one man about it, and he's kind of an expert on Tom Brady. Brent. But uh, Brent was just like... I was like, Brent, why do you love to hate Tom Brady so much? And he's like, ah, the guy's just too good. Ah, I mean, nobody's that good, he's telling me. He's like, they tear their team apart every year, and they put a whole bunch of rookies with him, and they're good. And this guy just keeps making passes and plays, and I get to Flategate, so we found all these problems, but I don't think he was part of it. This guy's just really good. I can't stand that. And I'm like, oh, wow. He's like, yeah, I even watched watched this documentary on him. And I'm like, wait, you hate him and you're watching his documentaries? But anyway, he's like, yeah, man, because he says all the right things in these. When, it, when, it's his, when it's not his fault, he takes blame. When they have a victory, he gives it away. And I'm watching on this documentary, and the next thing I know, he's crying because he felt like he left his family down because he was a sixth-round draft pick. And, and it was just this horrible situation. I'm just like, and he's like, man, the guy's just got character. And I'm like, so why do you hate him so much? And I said, oh, I get it. Because he's not on the Steelers. <laughs> and that's exactly right. If Tom Brady was on your team, you'd be really, really happy. I find it interesting that it's those who find themselves on the other side of Jesus. Not on his, where Jesus isn't on their team. That they can't handle him. They can't deal with it when he doesn't fit their religious perspectives when he doesn't uphold their religious heroes. So it's no wonder as we move forward that though Jesus truly is the, is the hero of all heroes, this, these Jewish people can't handle it. They keep going. Verse 52, they said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Hey, what about our heroes? Abraham was amazing. The prophets were people of God, and they died. Anyone, and then they go on. What are you saying, Jesus. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Which is the point of the text. Here's Jesus' reply. Are you greater? Or Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, if I try to make myself famous, it doesn't matter. My fame is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Well, that sounds arrogant. (laughs) Claiming, yeah, God's going to glorify me. He says, but you've not known him. Sounds arrogant because you don't know God. I know him, he says. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus is like a straight shooter, man. You don't want to mess with this guy. Calls you a liar when you're lying. It's crazy. And then he he says, look, you want to know how I can say this? Because I know God. I know him personally. I'm connected with him. In fact, you want to know what else I think? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Say, what? Jesus just claimed he knew Abraham. In fact, he had had some kind of conversation where Jesus, he's like, Jesus saw the day and he was glad. And, And this is the Jewish response. They're like, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? I find that actually funny. 
Yeah, I know a 55-year-old who knows Abraham, but you're not even 50. It's like, why no? Why don't they say, like, you're not even 2,000 years old? The point is that, Jesus, you're, you got to be full of it, man. You're not old enough to know Abraham. Nobody is. And then Jesus drops this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham existed, I am. And with those two words, he drops the name of God. He says, before Abraham was even around, I existed. I am God. I am the I am. It's the most clear declaration of his deity that comes from Jesus' mouth. In essence, he says, sure, the prophets are awesome. I agree. Abraham's amazing. But you know who Abraham looked to? He looked to me. I came before Abraham. I made Abraham. Who do you think called him away from Haran out of Ur? And, and when Abraham saw his son bound there, about to take the knife and slit his own son's throat, he saw in the thicket a gum, uh, this, this ram, and he grabbed the ram, and God provided. And who do you think the provision was a picture of? But the hero come to rescue us by sacrificing himself. Oh yeah, Abraham saw that day and he rejoiced at it. I'm the one who made Abraham. I'm the one who makes the heroes. If you have a hero, I guarantee it's the parts of your hero that you love, you will find in Jesus. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I did a whole audit on, on my values and stuff. And one of the things that made me do is list all my heroes out. And my heroes are kind of these historical people. I mean, I started with John and Paul because I'm like the apostles. You got to have an apostle in your hero list. And then I moved forward to this guy named Athanasius who stood against the world while proclaiming the Trinity in the midst of a world that was disavowing it. And we still have the Trinity today because of Athanasius. And then move forward to Augustine and, and his teachings and his stances in his various debates. And then all the way up to Martin Luther, who gave his, practically gave his life and everything he had to bring about a transformation of the church. And then pressing onward to, to where I land with William Wilberforce, who two days before his deathbed got what he had lived his entire adult existence to fight the end of slavery in England. What a man. And then I picked up a couple of my kid favorites that I loved. Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. They were inventors. I just loved their minds and what they were able to do. And the, and the way he made the light bulb and the guy who made the, the elect, you know, all this currents and electricities and stuff. And, and then this is like my list. And I start going out with all these different people, on, you know, included in their C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And... I'm like, the reason I love C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien is, is the brilliance of their fantasy and what they wrote and how they brought their faith to bear into a, into a modern world. What I loved about Nikola Tesla and, and, um, and, and Thomas Edison was, was their minds and how they saw creativity. And I started as I going through this, the stance of Martin Luther, the willingness to give the life of William Wilberforce, the stance against injustice these people took in order to bring about life for others. I'm like, wait a minute, who am I describing here? The most inventive being that's ever existed was God, was Jesus. The one who has the greatest stories ever told are the ones that all, we, t we tell all our tales off of, which is Jesus. Let alone the one who was willing to give his life to save us from the worst disaster ever, our own sin. And I started to back up and say, there is no attribute I can find in my heroes that I can't find in Jesus. 
And in the end, I kind of erased my hero list and said, I love these guys. But I'll be quite honest. I can, without a shadow of a doubt, say, Jesus is my hero. And I guarantee you what you're going to be shocked at is he is yours too. I want you to do a little Christmas experiment as we celebrate a baby under a tree. (laughs) Think about it for a minute. What is the gift really under the stars? It's this baby who came, who is God, come to save us, the hero of heroes. This week, write your list of heroes out. Write what those attributes are. And I challenge you to see if they don't really align with the Jesus who is truly found in Scripture. And when you find it, church, let us return to the clarion call that Jesus is and will always be our hero. Amen? Let's not be ashamed of it. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, what an awesome thing it is that you've sent your son. Jesus, what an awesome thing it is that you would humble yourself to come and to rescue us when we weren't looking for the rescue. But when we realized where we were, what state we were in, you were willing to save us. Not in some broad, ostentatious manner where you're an egomaniacal maniac, but in a humble, in fact, humiliating, shameful manner of dying on a cross. Thank you. Thank you for being our hero. It's in your name we pray. Amen.